This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's go back to our conversation about what the federal government is doing. Speaking of Washington, D.C., Michael McKee still with us, international economics and policy correspondent, and Dave Wilson, stocks editor for Bloomberg. Mike, I want to come back to you. As you said, the devil's in the details here. I think it's important also to bring in this idea of what the Fed and sort of the central bank side has been doing. Stitch that together for us to give us a complete picture of what this all looks like. Well, the Fed was the first to move. They they didn't have to wait and negotiate. They just brought back a lot of the lending programs, along with their rate cut, a lot of the lending programs that had been used in the 2008-2009 period for uh, the great financial crisis. And then they added a couple more, and that's where the two things get tied together. They added the primary credit and secondary credit lending facilities in which they set up special purpose vehicles to purchase corporate bonds, which the Fed isn't legally allowed to do uh, by itself. And those are backstopped by the Treasury, a total of $30 billion going into those from the Exchange Stabilization Fund. So the Treasury takes the first risk because the Fed's not allowed to lose money. And so that's where the four to six trillion comes from. If indeed the Fed is going to be the vehicle for the Treasury Department to spend the $425 billion they're talking about uh, uh, in the stimulus bill uh, for Treasury, then uh, at a 10 to 1 ratio, uh, as the two uh, corporate bond programs do, you could come up with that kind of money. You could uh, leverage it into that kind of lending for the economy. Mike, I got to jump in though because I love it. As soon as this package or the details of it really kind of hit and everybody was talking about it, immediately New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is talking about it not being enough. And what's interesting is even, you know, our own reporters putting out a story saying that this, you know, it's a record stimulus package, no doubt about it, but it doesn't provide the much needed aid to small companies and Americans that are hit hard by the coronavirus. It's not going to prevent a big short term hit to the U.S. economy, which is what I think we're all concerned about. And also a dramatic rise in unemployment, which if anything, we learn from the financial crisis, and I understand this isn't a financial crisis, is that having so many workers out of work, it took us a decade to get us back to where we were pre-coronavirus. And I and as you look at it and put on your economic hat, I mean, do you agree that it's lacking in those two areas, two important areas? Well, it is lacking, but uh, you've got a, a number of different things going on there. First of all, the unemployment rise is baked in. That's going to happen no matter what Congress did because companies, especially service industries like restaurants and bars, were told last week, close. And so they just let everybody go. There's not much we can do about that. The question is, uh, what is this bill going to provide in terms of uh, money to keep people on the payrolls? The, The idea was that they would be able to pay companies something to retain their employees on payrolls. And we don't know, first of all, whether that means companies who've already let people go and could call them back, put them on the payroll and pay them, uh, that detail lacking. 
And if not, how much are we going to need? Uh, estimates are you'd need a trillion and a half to be able to do that. And there's only something like 350 billion in there. So in that sense, it would be short. So we're not sure what they meant. Now, needing more money, the trillion and a half is over a period of time. Yeah. So how long is that? Could they come back and appropriate more? Sure. And people are kind of expecting them to do that. Now, mm. the Cuomo remarks are a little different. Uh, what's going to happen to the states is not only do they have this extra expense of taking care of the people with the disease, but nobody's working. So the state's not collecting any taxes. They're not They're not getting your withholding tax. Uh, they're not getting the sales taxes except for the toilet paper you bought. Uh, so they're going to have big revenue shortfalls. And that's what Governor Cuomo was talking about. And I imagine Governor Northam yeah. would say the same thing. Cuomo said, New York's going to get 3.8 billion in this bill, but they're expecting a revenue shortfall of nine to 10 billion, and that's a problem for states because they have balanced budget amendments. Right. Yeah. So how do they fill that hole? So the feeling is Congress is going to have to come back and do some more. So Dave Wilson, last word to you. You know, you mentioned names like Boeing, the airlines, all doing well among this because they will be the clear beneficiaries. Will we start to see, in your estimation, over the next couple of days, or maybe even today, sort of this? sort of winners and losers start to, to play out within the trade? Well, we've certainly seen the losers over the last several weeks yeah. turn into the winners in the last couple of days. So there's that sort of back and forth in terms of volatility going on. But if you want to put it in that context, I mean, one thing that's interesting about today is you're seeing Google's owner Alphabet's down, Facebook is down, Netflix is down. So, you know, these are the kinds of companies that have been market leaders for more than a decade now. I talked about yesterday about how the NASDAQ 100 index is getting close to its 2000 high relative to the S&P 500. So to see this kind of a pullback, I mean, it gets your attention. Maybe people are buying some other names today. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, Dave Wilson, thanks so much. Dave's going to be back uh, later on with his chart and stock of the day. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's go, sorry, now to the nation's capital. Laura Davison is there. She is congressional tax reporter. She has been watching this so closely. She's probably read a lot more of that 1,200 pages than any of us have. Uh, Laura, great to have you with us. So give us some specifics that people can really sort of sink their teeth into in terms of what's in this bill. So there's there's two big piles of money for businesses. One is for large businesses, corporations, you know, state and also some state and local governments. And then there's a smaller pot of money that goes to small businesses. On the small business side, the idea here is really to keep workers employed. So there's incentives for small businesses to to keep those workers on. They'll get some payments and, they, and basically just to not lay people off. Larger business side, you're looking at, you know, that's where you're looking at the money for airlines, potentially money for other travel industry businesses, and there's a lot of strings attached there. That is what Democrats have been pushing for for the past uh, several days and kind of one of the holdups on getting this bill finalized, which is still not quite yet finalized. But uh, that is, so for there, there's some if for, uh, CEO pay for things like stock buybacks or uh, dividends. There's some restrictions there uh, in order to, to get that money. And there's also oversight, which was not uh, something that had been in the bill originally. So there will be um, an inspector general and an oversight panel to, to ensure that those funds are being spent as Congress intended. 
So, Laura, what I do wonder about, though, is there probably are a lot of business who has, businesses and certainly restaurants and, and certainly the hotel industry, I mean, who have let workers go. So do we know, the devil's in the details, do we know that those workers that are let go, are they now taken care of as a result of this? How does it work? Yeah, so there's sort of two two answers there. One is there um, are some retroactive provisions in this bill. So if, if companies had, you know, let's say they hi- fired some people yesterday, had to lay some people off yesterday, they could go and hire those people back and, and, and still be able to avail themselves of some of these benefits. There are also um, some big new benefits here for unemployment insurance. So uh, Chuck Schumer has said that, that basically the idea was to get people to 100% of their, um, of their salary. They extended um, unemployment benefits for months. So for people who had already seen their uh, their their jobs go away, there's there's some money in there for them. There's also a new payroll tax credit for businesses who have had to shut down mostly or completely. You know, think of movie theater or something. They, uh, Congress is giving them some big tax benefits if they keep their people on. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of a tough sell if you have no revenue. Still hard to keep uh, payroll going, but there's there's a lot of different levers here that businesses can avail themselves of. And Laura, you know, one of the things that Mike McKee touched on just a few minutes ago. It, it, prompted by Carol was this whole discussion about different states and governors and cities and whatnot and sort of what they get and how they can use it. Help us understand some of the nuance there. Yeah, so this is really probably the next fight we'll see brewing. So in this bill, there are lots of different uh, there's, there's a pot of money of about $150 billion that goes to state and local governments. There's also funding for, uh, for Medicare for, that you know, is kind of administered through the states. There's um, some money for hospitals. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of different line items that are all going to the states, but you've already seen um, Governor Cuomo as well um, as California talk about how this isn't going to be enough. So Congress is already eyeing uh, a, a phase four and a phase five bill. This is phase three that we're on today. Um, and I think that's really where the discussion is going to go of kind of what money do states need going forward? Because uh, they say this just this isn't enough. I'm just kind of sitting with that. So this is phase three, right? Phase four and phase five to come, which to some extent is going to make sense because when we get on the other side of this, we will be able to assess even some of the more, you know, some more of the damage, right? Right. In terms of businesses and to the economy. And we're going to continue to need assistance, Laura. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, and, you know, just think though, and also about the size. So here, you know, we're talking about $2 trillion almost, you know, the, the first two phases were, were significantly smaller, but um, depending how long this lasts and sort of what the, the, the money that is needed, you could be looking at, uh, you know, trillions more uh, that would need to go out uh, both uh, for the government as well as states. Are folks getting along? <laughs> are we finding that, you know, uh, Republicans, Democrats are coming together and, and not making this, let me get something for my state, you know, and, and in the process that they're thinking about, okay, what really needs to be done just for this crisis? Well, that's uh, it's all relative and really all hour by hour. Today, uh, lawmakers are getting along a lot better than they were yesterday when they were still hashing out the final details of a bill. Um, expect that um, you know, now sort of tensions are, are over in the House. They're still deciding exactly how they're going to proceed, whether they're going to call all their members back to vote or if they're going to do what's called unanimous consent, where they can basically do it with just a couple people in the room. However, if even one person objects, you know, all the, out of 435, then they will all have to come back and vote. And there's a lot of House members concerned that it isn't safe, uh, that they should be sort of modeling the behavior that uh, that the White House and um, and health, public health officials are, are promoting. So there is uh, there is definitely some tension still in the building. And so, Laura, in your estimation, as you talk to to lawmakers, 
are there big holes that they feel like are going to have to be uh, handled down the line? What are they hearing from constituents? So uh, consi- they're really worried about uh, kind of people who have already lost their jobs. So that is what the, the, the individual checks that are going out to uh, people. Um, as Chuck Schumer said this morning, those should be going out April 6th. There's a lot of indications that it won't be quite that quickly, but they're, they're really concerned about people who are have, you know, facing mortgage payments, rent payments in the next couple of weeks. That's where they're concerned about. The White House had initially talked about doing two phases of checks, one in April and one in May of about $1,000 each. That's not in that bill, but that is another thing you could see coming back to if this extends for a very long time. You see unemployment go up, you know, businesses stay closed. That's uh, something that they're going to be very concerned about. Hey, Laura, just one last question, and I am curious about the, you know, I think what kind of surprised us all yesterday uh, is the president um, this week kind of changing tune and talking a lot more about getting the U.S. economy reopened at this point. Is there any theme uh, in terms or consensus when it comes to members of uh, the U.S. Congress about that? There's not really a, a consensus there about exactly how to approach it. But if you just look at the bill that they've put out today, or, you know, we're still having summaries where we'll expect the final text later today. This is assistance that is lasting for months, if not for the rest of the year. So at least on Capitol Hill, they're basically bracing for um, a business economic government shutdown that will last um, a lot longer than, um, you know, just to Easter, for example. All right. Laura Davison. Thank you so much, Congressional Tax Reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from D.C. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Dr. Ian Lusbader is back with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at uh, the NYU Langone Medical Center. He's back with us on the phone in New York. Um, Dr. Lusbader, nice to have you back with us. I assume you're doing well and, and you're doing okay. Thank you. Yeah, great concern from patients. I must say we're doing more telemedicine, which we'll talk about. And patients are always saying, I hope you're saying, well, there's a real support for physicians. And uh, I must say, with every crisis, I think there are potential positives and potential opportunities. You know, we're seeing some positives with great um, support from physicians volunteering uh, to support their colleagues in the ICU, a lot of the intensive care and COVID units, uh, you know, staff is getting tired. There, uh, there, there's a, a fair volume, and now uh, the hospitals have arranged uh, with support of their private faculty to come in and and uh, relieve some of the other areas in the hospital to uh, get support. Uh, we're seeing uh, so that I think is a positive shared sacrifice. And one of the things that we're seeing too is a big expansion of telemedicine, virtual visits. Mm-hmm. That that was really previously, you know, restricted. You couldn't um, uh, reach patients outside of the state. Uh, Medicare and private insurance really restricted that. They they sort of steered people towards uh, uh, office visits. And now we're seeing a big surge with the use of virtual visits. And I think the patients really like it. And so tell us about it. I mean, what's from your perspective and from the patient's perspective, what's different? What do you lose, uh, if anything, and what do you gain? Well, uh, you can really do a lot uh, when you see the patient, you see how they're breathing, you can discuss uh, medications, you have your computer open so you're able to review labs and prior cardiograms, you can renew medications. You know, you are a little limited by physical exam, although many people will have the patients take deep breaths, 
listen for uh, cough or listen for wheezing. Uh, we'll even occasionally have patients feel their own abdomen to see if there's a tender area. So you can do a lot remotely. Patients often will prepare in advance. They'll check their blood pressure, their temperature, their pulse. So they can really report a lot to you. It's not the same, really, as having someone there, but you can accomplish a lot. It saves patients uh, parking, traveling, uh, and certainly exposure. And for older patients or people who are sick uh, who may have COVID, and we're seeing a lot of patients who probably clinically do have COVID. They have headache. They have loss of smell. They may have diarrhea. They may have a cough. And they're very reassured to see a doctor and have a virtual visit uh, where they can be um, you know, reassured as to what likely is a diagnosis and what to do if they deteriorate, where to go and how to get tested. Dr. Lesbader, how much of this do you think will ultimately stick around after those, this wave of uh, COVID-19 passes? That's a great question. A lot of people really say life will not be the same after this. I think if telemedicine remains, uh, that will be a good thing. I think it's a great adjunct. I think patients who can't come in or uh, if it's a bad snowy day and they need to reach out and, and uh, uh, connect, I think it'll be great. We don't know whether private insurance or CMS, who now expanded it, Will they change it? Will they say, look, we did this just for a crisis, now we're going to withdraw it, so we don't really know. But I think there will be more telecommuting and, and tele-working uh, remotely. Hopefully that will maintain, mm -hmm. too. I think when all is said and done, we're going to have a huge percent of the population. When we can do the sero testing, the, the IgM, IgG, sero levels of COVID, I think we're going to have 70 or 80 percent of the population positive. Fortunately, it's only a very small percent that deteriorate. But a lot of patients, when they call in, have clinical symptoms that are very typical. Yeah. yeah. Loss of smell, cough, uh, sore throat, aches, not feeling quite right. Right. And, uh, and they're worried. And well, so it's nice to reach a physician. I totally agree. And that was the, st st the statistic that I kind of had teased that you said that when all is said and done, about 80% of the country will ultimately test positive for the virus. But it, it's a reminder that, you know, it's not obviously impacting and gratefully that it's not impacting everybody in the same way. Um, Dr. Lesbader, thank you so much. We really do appreciate being able to reach out to you, especially. Uh, at times like this. Dr. Ian Lusbader, he's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center, frequent guest on our air and certainly on our program, joining us on the phone from New York. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. One company certainly uh, stepping into the conversation in a big way is 3M. You have heard a number of public officials most recently, I believe yesterday, the mayor of New York City speaking about Mike Roman, the CEO of 3M. Well, he spoke with our own David Weston yesterday, Mike Roman did, about the efforts the company is making to work with the White House. Check it out. Well, we've been working very closely with the government. We've been working you know, with, uh, with Vice President Pence from his visit, looking at how to make sure that we can shift what have been the industrial N95 respirators into healthcare. So it was really appreciate the, the emergency use authorization out of the FDA and then the PrEP Act amendment, which enabled us to be able to deliver our industrial respirators, that N95, to the healthcare workers at the front line. That was the first big step. So that is the 3M CEO, Mike Roman, talking uh, with our own Bloomberg, David Weston. Well, 3M and its uh, 
overall team caught up with our Brian Gruley. He's got a great story that's the cover of the magazine this week. Brian is Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. He's with us right now on the phone from Chicago. Also with us, Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. He's on the phone from Brooklyn. So, Brian, let me kick it off with you. I mean, 3M... Man, this is a company that has learned from past crises and figured out how to be ready for what we needed today. Talk to us about um, what they learned. Uh, I believe it was through SARS. Yeah. So 18 years ago, uh, you had the SARS outbreak, 2002, 2003. And after that, 3M realized they really weren't geared up to uh to address a real big surge in demand. And so then they decided that uh, they would build into their plants what they called surge capacity. And over the years, um, they refined this. But, but essentially what it is is putting in idle lines, you know, lines you don't use, which, you know, assembly lines you don't use, which runs contrary to most um, business sense. I mean, when, when we talk about automobile manufacturers, for instance, and we talk about down capacity, that's money going out the door because you're not, you're paying for that. You have carrying costs on that equipment and machinery and you're not getting any money for it. So this is something that 3M thought would, would be helpful in times of crisis and, and they've used it over and over again, but, but um, it never has it come into such important play as it is now right so joel weber uh come on in here what struck you about this story because obviously everything's a business story as you often say and man this is just a business squarely in the heart of a crisis yeah so i i um i've thought about this story a lot because it was one of the first things that came to mind a couple of weeks ago as we were just seeing a huge um, surge in demand for for a lot of consumer products, actually, from things like toilet paper to Gojo hand sanitizer and even Clorox bleach, right? Like, and the the idea kind of just jumped in my head of like, you know, how do you make more of these products yesterday? Mm-hmm. How does how does 3M manufacture millions and millions of masks uh, in addition to the ones that they were already doing? So I sort of just started kicking that idea around with people like Brian and Rick Clue, who's also the co-byline on this story. And 3M just kind of came back to us again as like the company, like in the middle of a crisis like this. And lo and behold, it turns out that they're a company that actually has built this manufacturing technique into its factories for precisely this moment. And so they've been able to go into overdrive actually back at, beginning in January and what we're seeing now is like by the end of the year, they they may have been able to make as many as more than a billion face masks. And that's just incredible when you think about a company that was just sort of potentially in the right place at the right time and, and had the capacity and wherewithal to kind of plan for the future. What's interesting, too, is, you know, and Brian, I, I just think about this is a company, if we think about 3M, they have just so many different products under their roofs. under their roof and most of us think about the post-it notes and you know those things but i mean they do so much more this is a company that's been around for a long time yeah they've they're really experts in materials creating materials and you mentioned one post-it which is one of their it's part of you know the adhesives they make which include industrial adhesives and all sorts of other things they have i think 46 different technology platforms they build from 
this is a good thing for them, and it's, sometimes it's a bad thing because it's tough to keep all those different businesses going in the right direction. And when one or two are not, Wall Street doesn't like that. They want them all to be going up at the same time. So they, they've had some struggles over the last couple of years, but uh, they're doing pretty pretty well right now, especially in this particular spot. And uh, it's sort of an odd feel-good story in the midst of this crisis, which produces so much grim news. It is interesting, too. And, and Joel, it strikes me that, you know, you spend, I know, a lot of time thinking about leadership and CEOs and strategy. I mean, this could be, I mean, we're talking about Mike Roman in this case, but I mean, this could be a separating moment, a separation moment for, in many cases for leadership at some of the world's most important companies, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and look, like 3M has had some um, difficulties just in general with its, you know, share price. And, yeah. and, you know, we'll we'll see if this is sort of one of those moments that allows the company to kind of to rise above. I mean, like at the very least, you're if you're working for this company right now, you've got a cause you can believe in. Yeah. And that might be a distinguishing factor for its business compared to just some other ones that, you know, it's nice to have, but maybe not something that you need to have. And when you're able to bring a billion products into the world that has the capacity to save lives and, and bring down, um, you know, flatten the curve um, and protect medical workers, um, I think that that really goes a long way for just, you know, emboldening, emboldening your employees to, to get behind the cause. And that, you know, that just feels like the, the wind must be at your back at that point. Well, yeah. And Brian, speak to that because they were able to bring in a ton more workers. They've had workers working overtime, you know, respecting social distancing. But those workers are there um, and working around the clock. Yeah. Um, you know, most companies rightfully have emptied out. Ours, you know, including ours, you know, we're, we're all, well, just about all of us are working from home. Yeah. VM has 96,000 employees. More than half of them are going into factories and warehouses um, every day to work. And so, you know, um, they're like the uh, the supply lines in the military uh, vernacular. You know, the, the first, the people on the front lines are the doctors and the nurses and all the medical personnel, and these people are back at the supply lines trying to keep one one other thing just to that end brian that i think is really worth mentioning about this story is another element that 3m figured out long ago was that they couldn't have the same sort of international supply chains that you might have for other products so they've learned to actually localize the supply chain so that the north america supply of of n95 masks comes from north america it doesn't come from china china supplies itself europe supplies itself and that's valuable tool right now. Right. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Brian Gruley, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. I do want to mention a headline crossing. Uh, the 
President's chief economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, saying the Senate aid bill drafting error to be worked out. So it sounds like they're still doing um, crossing the T's, dotting the I's here uh, and waiting for a vote on that massive $2 trillion bailout program uh, coming from the U.S. Congress. So we'll continue to monitor those headlines. In the meantime, it is time for the drive to the close. John Levito is with us, co-chief investment officer of Global Fixed Income over at American Century Investments, $132 billion in assets, I believe, overall under management. Uh, I think there's roughly about 40 or $41 billion in terms of fixed income. John joining us on the phone from New Jersey. John, nice to have you back with us. Um, talk to us about this environment. What have you had to change in terms of strategies and outlook? Well, that's uh, great to be with you, and uh, good afternoon. I mean, obviously, you know, in this environment, in terms of how you, you, how you cope with it is, the number one thing you want to cope with is two things, is the volatility and then the liquidity. Obviously, the uh, volatility is to an extreme that, you know, you, you don't see very often. We last saw this back in 08, 09. And in a lot of sense, it's, it's, it's worse than 08, 09 because the speed of change that we saw here relative to 10 years ago. And then the second thing is the, is the liquidity. You know, liquidity in, um, in fixed income uh, over the last month has really dried up across all sectors, whether it's, you know, corporate bonds, securitized, and we've even seen it from time to time in the government security. So that's really been the main challenge is dealing with the volatility and the liquidity. I should say the lack of liquidity. Right, right. So speaking of lack of liquidity, uh, John, talk to us about the Fed. I mean, what a remarkable couple weeks as we've watched the Fed uh, step in in ways that I think even for seasoned watchers like yourself still seems extraordinary. What's the net impact for an investor of the Fed's actions? Well, I think the, uh, the big message to take from what the Fed has done, as you, as you said, right, this is incredible what they've done, and it's really the speed of what they've done. And now, we know back in 08, 09, they stepped in and did quite a bit back then, too. But what we're seeing now is really even at a more rapid pace. And so they're really touching on all aspects of the market. Obviously, bringing rates down close to zero is the most obvious. Uh, unlimited QE, but all the uh, various programs they put in place to help with liquidity around money markets, credit, securitized, these are really, uh, you know, uh, you know, very aggressive steps. Um, you know, obviously, initially, I would say the reaction was a bit muted, but I think between, uh, you know, the, the fiscal action and then the accumulation of action that we've seen from a monetary policy standpoint, it is, it is at least um, stabilizing for, the, you know, for, for now over the last couple of days uh, markets a little bit. But, you know, there's a, it, it's, it's very, very early. Yeah, it is very early, and I do wonder about you know whether enough is being done to shore up the situation. Are you at all, um, John, nervous about what's a health crisis initially becoming a financial crisis? Well, certainly you need to be right because you know obviously this is unprecedented in terms of what we're, in terms of what we're seeing with regard to a health crisis. And if you look at the stress that it's putting on financial conditions across various sectors, right, you can look at sectors like, you know, travel and leisure, energy and so on. These companies are going to, you know, many companies are going to come under a lot of stress, particularly if this lingers, you know, into the summer. Uh, and so you, you need to go and look through security by security in terms of the health of names and companies that you own to see just how, uh, you know, how they, you know, how they can fare you know, in, in, in what is certainly going to be a recessionary period. And the question is just how deep and how long. Yeah, I mean, one thing I do want to point out, uh, Carol, and I think uh, you just tweeted about it, is that you're seeing stocks 
well off their highs, uh, taking a massive leg down. Yeah. We did just have a, a headline cross uh, that uh, Senator Sanders, Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, running for the Democratic nomination, still threatening to hold up stimulus in response to GOP. So uh, this is a little bit of a last minute uh, Gambit, uh, as it were, we are going to keep watching this very closely, obviously, but the market reacting presumably to that uncertainty right there. And I mean, if you look at the chart, as I'm guessing you are, Carol, you just see it really drop. I mean, up uh, as much as four, four and a half percent of the S&P now up about one, one and a half percent. Right. And there's another headline that Larry Kudlow is saying the House will pass the Senate stimulus package. But, you know, looking at what's going on on the equity side of things, um, it's certainly been very telling in the last 10 minutes here of just seeing stocks. Right now we've got, as you said, Jason, uh, the NASDAQ in negative territory, but we've definitely uh, pulled back here. So we'll have to see what happens here. So, John, what are you telling clients? What's your advice here when there is still such a lack of visibility uh, we still see fighting among our U.S. lawmakers in a time of crisis. Um, what are you advising clients at this point? Well, I think, you know, when you get into situations like this where there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility, and as we mentioned, a lack of, a lack of, a lack of liquidity, I think really the what we advise clients and, frankly, what we advise ourselves is to take a step back and to take, you know, look at the sort of the medium to long term in terms of where do you think you want to be and where do you think you – where, where do you think markets are going? Because it's very, very difficult in very fast markets, to be frank, to make uh, to make you know um, to make decisions which are you know uh, easy to enact, you know, given the lack of liquidity. So what we do is, and what we advise clients is, is what do you think is going to happen over the next three, six, nine months? Not what do you think is going to happen over the next three three days or three weeks, mm-hmm. because you, it's, it's how you come out of this is, what is, is what's important. And yes, you want to manage your risks in the short term, don't get me wrong, but it's you know, looking to see where the winners and losers are going to be over the medium term. And if you do that, that you'll, you'll be fine. And it's just to stay calm and to stick to your process and to your long-term goals. All right. Good advice. John Levito is co-chief investment officer of Global Fixed Income for American Century Investments, joining us on the phone in New Jersey. Stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.